0: Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Go on! Shoot you, puning chicken of a man with nothing of blood in your veins to give your hands steady. What do you think you're laughing at? Get up on your feet. No big lug's gonna laugh at me. I'll show you who shall. Do you mean to tell me, Katie Scarlett O'Hara, the terror, that land doesn't mean anything to you? White land is the only thing in the world worth working for. Worth fighting for, worth dying for. Because it's the only thing that lasts.
1: Well, it looks like you've got another passenger. Yeah. I'll take the Winchester. You may need me in this Winchester, Curly.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal.
1: And I'm Chris.
0: And last week we talked about half of the Best Picture nominees of 1939, a, a classic year in cinema. Um, and we generally liked them all, I would say. Um, so let's see if we can keep up the positivity this week. Something tells me maybe not.
1: Yeah, I think we're gonna, we're gonna hit some stumbling blocks with the second half, but I think in general, the quality of the films is still pretty high, even if we don't um, think all of them are, you know, all time classics.
0: Yeah, totally. So what have we got this week?
1: Well, the second half brings us Of Mice and Men, uh, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, and of course the winner, Gone with the Wind. So I guess we're starting with uh, Of Mice and Men, which was the first adaptation of John Steinbeck's work in Hollywood, and of course led to some other more successful adaptations afterwards, notably The Grapes of Wrath, by John Ford the following year. But um, what do we make of Of Mice and Men?
0: Well, it's very bleak, isn't it? I've not read any of Steinbeck's work, but I have seen The Grapes of Wrath, which is a great film. Um, Mm -hmm. And while I don't think Of Mice and Men is as great, I do think it has its moments. Um, But it is a little relentlessly miserable. Um, And I, I did tweet quite prematurely after about 40 minutes I was watching it and I tweeted after 40 minutes that I I really was quite perplexed that nothing had happened really not much had happened and um Mm -hmm. but I do think that that's kind of the point and I do think it's very much of a slow burn that the themes of the piece sort of gradually come to the fore um so I ended up quite appreciating it appreciating it really how did you feel
1: um kind of the same um it does have these long stretches that um at first i kind of wasn't really getting into but as the film went on yeah i agree it kind of pulls you in more and more and it is definitely a slow burn but when um when the shit hits the fan for lack of a better word it really delivers and you come to appreciate, I think, the slow buildup that it gives you and the immersion in these, in these two men's lives and the hopelessness that they face, which, you know, is a, definitely a theme of, of Steinbeck's work, the, um, the trials and tribulations of these itinerant workers. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that the movie is not directly based on the novel, it's actually based on a play that was made from the novel and so it's kind of a um a second-hand adaptation of the original story which i guess explains some of the longer uh kind of static dialogue scenes that we get in the film
0: yeah it's yeah that that first 30 40 minutes is is quite strangely paced um It took me a while to get involved with John uh, Lon Chaney's character um, because I'm really not a big fan of the whole gentle giant character um, Mm -hmm. that really, you know, kind of the Michael Clark Duncans um, and the Green Mile kind of characters where, you, you know, it's kind of you get somebody who's sort of physically too big to cope with themselves uh, with regard to how mentally they they are um and I, I you know this is obviously very long ago so i can't imagine there've been many uh examples of that kind of character before then but um i think eventually it is quite emotional how that character evolves and especially with the ending and what has to happen which I kind of thought it had to happen at the end. Did you get that impression with, with how things conclude?
1: Um, yeah, for sure. Um, the, um, and the foreshadowing of how it was going to turn out, I think, was very subtly and well done. It didn't kind of hit you over the head with it. I mean, with maybe the exception of when they're talking about um, the one guy's dog, yeah. Um very long scene before they take him out to put him down and I thought that was a little on the nose. Um
0: I had to mute it. I, I was yeah. cuz I was waiting for the shot and I I just couldn't. Mm. So I had to mute it. I think it did very well. It, it really eked out the tension of that. Um but it, I'm not very good with dog death even implied dog death um so yeah no, parts I'm... of this film really worked for me
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and i'm 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 with you there and it was uh it's a very emo- i think they did a great job of he- heightening that emotional um, the emotional beat of that scene and it was kind of refreshing that nobody in the scene was brushing it off as oh it's just a dog like even the guy who wanted to the dog to die was not saying, oh, it's just a worthless animal. He was—he understood the emotional connection, which also kind of underscored what happened later uh, between George and Lenny. But going back to the kind of portrayal of Lenny and what happens to him at the end, um, I do agree that his character and, um, and uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as the actor really finds that kind of emotional center in a character that would could easily have been played you know and missed the mark by going over the top with the um with the handicap or the childlike yes. nature of it and like you said it's probably one of the first if not the first portrayals of that kind of character so they, he really didn't have a template to go off of um so is made more impressive by that
0: Yeah, and I I think at the end it does feel... It's interesting because there is this recurrent theme and the dog thing comes into it with putting the dog down and you're right, they all empathise with the dog and with Candy, who owns the dog. And um, it does almost feel like because they're in such poverty, they see themselves more on the same level almost um and it you know i think at one point candy um who's played by roman bonan who i think is very good in this um Mm -hmm. is he says i something along the lines of i wish somebody would just shoot me like they did my dog kind of thing and i just thought it really summed up the the poverty and the you know the aspiration and failure that they're having to deal with and they're not being able to settle and that the lack of self-worth is very palpable among all of them um mm-hmm. so for me that was quite emotional throughout that that these people just couldn't lift themselves up from uh the the, the lifestyle they were living and that that's obviously a bigger implication beyond that of, neglect and lack of welfare etc at the time
1: mm-hmm. yeah and i think that that's another major uh theme that steinbeck likes to explore is how economic circumstances um bind people together far more than others and keep people apart far more than other factors um and we kind of get the sense of that when um, they visit um I forget his name, but when they go to the um what's his name, um when they when Curly? they visit the black uh no, uh Crooks, remember? Yeah. Crooks was the the yeah. And they go to him and he's kinda of set apart from the rest, but they very quickly kind of just fall into a hey, we're we're in the same boat mm. kind of camaraderie and the the racial barrier is very easily erased by their circumstances and by their shared experience
0: yeah Yeah, it's interesting it's kind of a bit like um how green was my valley it's like it's interesting to compare similar periods um and similar working class people but in i think is it wales how green was my valley Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah at least they've got a union. Um, at least there's this sort of an element of togetherness with the workers. It feels like these people are really, you know, cast into the drift and they haven't even got anyone to support them. I mean, one of them has lost an arm and was just given a couple hundred dollars to just, you know, go off and don't say anything. And um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like they don't really have the support network there.
1: Um, just briefly to note that it was one of only two of the Best Picture nominees that got shut out of the acting races, um, which is interesting. Um, Would you have nominated anybody from it? Um, I don't, if I was in 1939, I don't know, because these performances are much different from the rest, um, much more downbeat and soft-spoken than a lot of the other nominees. And so maybe that was... We've talked about how some kind, sometimes softer-spoken performances can slip under the radar of the Academy because they don't get noticed as much. Yeah. But I think everybody did a very good job, and I think it could have easily scored at least a <gasps> couple, one or two maybe. Bless you.
0: Yeah, I, I mean... At Betty field, I thought was a little bit over the top, um but sure. again, I would have nominated um Roman Bonin who was playing candy. That's probably about it uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, okay, um, shall we talk about John Ford?
1: yeah, always an exciting uh exciting director to talk about,
0: and um John Wayne and. In- a very young John Wayne as well. This is Stagecoach. Um, how did you feel about Stagecoach?
1: Um, it's, I mean, I don't generally, I'm not generally crazy about the director or the star, but I like, I love Stagecoach. Um, I think that as a kind of adventure story, as a kind of microcosm throwing people together, it's kind of a classic setup, you know, throw a bunch of different people in a, in a, uh, confined space and just let them bounce off of each other. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great setup. Um, it's like, um, Gilligan's Island in the old West basically. Um, and it's paced very well. I think, um, things happen kind of when they should happen to keep the story moving forward. Uh, there's definitely some elements that don't land quite as well as they might have back in the day, and I think the ending is a little Rushed. feels a little tacked on almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I mean, I think it's a very solid, um, solid film.
0: Yeah, I really like this one. Um, it's funny because we watched a stagecoach to was it stagecoach to murder. Um in our stagecoach to fury in our 1956 episode and Mm -hmm. watching the original stagecoach movie, which is uh, this one, it just like kind of affirms how much of a pale imitation that film was Um, because Mm -hmm. the relationships between the characters in this, while they're a bit convenient at times, because you do get people knowing each other already, which is always a bit like, "Mm." um. But the relationships are interesting, and I was quite hooked on most of the characters and cared about most of them. Um, And they've got this interesting camaraderie that you can sort of sense the element of distrust um, going on between them all, even even as they're talking and chattering away about this and that, Um, there still feels like a tension that really, you know, they're not, with people they would choose to be with ordinarily. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, if you watch like the hateful eight, for instance, I think it's pretty obvious that Tarantino's um, been inspired by this premise in general for that film. Um,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Even some shots, shots like when they find, Samuel Jackson in the snow. That's like pretty much a direct quote of when they come up upon John Wayne, and you get that camera zoom. Yes, and everything.
0: Yeah, totally. And I do love the hair fillet, actually. Even though I, I don't think many are big fans of that, but um,
1: it. I, w- I wouldn't say I love it, but I did like it. I did enjoy it.
0: Yeah, but it it's obvious that Stagecoach has been a model for, her films um, that have been made since. Um. What did you think of John Wayne? Cause, like, he's not renowned particularly for his acting abilities. Um,
1: I think that John Ford does a great job of making use of his limited range, um, and I was—I actually looked—I was surprised how many films that John Wayne had been in prior to this. Like, he had a long resume before he made this, because this film very much feels like an introduction of a hot new star you know, like a discovery kind of thing. Yeah. So it was was surprising to me to see that he'd been around making several movies a year for about a decade. Um, But I do think that this definitely was his kind of first huge success. Um, I I think he's good in it. Um, He, yeah, he, this is kind of before I think his John Wayne persona really settled in. So he's still, he's still not quite as confined in it as he usually is even, you know, a few years after this, but I I do think that he plays his role, uh, very competently and very well.
0: Yeah. Eventually he's got a charm in this that would eventually kind of disappear and it would mostly mm. become posturing, um, but I think, yep. like, John Ford got more out of him than any other director did. And, um, like, like, he's mm-hmm. really quite lovely in The Quiet Man, for instance. Um, but he's, he does make the Ringo kid appealing. And I do think the romance with Claire Trevor is quite interesting, given that she's supposed to be older than him, um, which is different for a film, any film, but especially this era that the woman is older. Um, yeah. You don't really normally get that kind of scenario. And the longer it goes, you kind of just wonder, well, why doesn't Dallas, Claire Trevor's character, why does not she just give him a go? Because even though he's like, he doesn't present it, the proposition to her in the most romantic fashion, it's just kind of like oh. saying, oh, I've got a ranch, you know, we just want to come back to the ranch and be my wife. Um, Mm-hmm. It's not exactly a big profession of love, but um, this—the longer it goes, the more you think. You know, Claire Trevor's obviously been messed around. This this guy's a, a decent-ish guy, um, although he's had mm-hmm. a checkered past. Why don't you just um, why don't you just trust them? So I I do think that that romance played out in an interesting way.
1: Yeah. I agree, and I also agree that he she kind of draws out her reticence way too long and draws out her like um the revelation of her profession, I guess, which is only ever hinted at in the film, but I think we all know yes and and it's like like you say, this guy is not he's not a priest he he has his own past, he has his own checkered past, I don't think. If you're gonna trust that anybody would be cool with it, I think it's him, you know, and <laughs> and he is, of course. So yeah, she she definitely is too cagey about it. It goes on for too long, but
0: and he can handle himself as well. If anybody, yeah, if anybody piped up, I I, I don't think you know they would come out of it very well.
1: No, and of course we have um we have Thomas Mitchell. Uh, in his winning performance as uh, as Doc Boone and he's just a hoot
0: yeah he's funny <laughs> with the um especially the the last line or very near the end about the whiskey it's about the whiskey you fancy a w- should we go and have a whiskey yeah or yeah is that mm mm-hmm. mhm you pull in my arm or something he,
1: <laughs> i think he says um eh, just one <laughs> yeah that's um My... My, yeah, my favorite, I like that, but I think um, my favorite is his, like, just before that, just before the shootout, and he stops, he stands in front of um, Luke and won't let him leave the bar with the shotgun, and as soon as he leaves, he just says to the bartender, don't ever let me do that again. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, he... He sobered up when he needed to, but he he was great as the drunk. Um, he again, you know, could have gone over the top with it, especially at this time. The style of playing the drunk was to go kind of big with it, but I think he kept it he kept it reined in a lot of the time and played it as a very realistic booze hound, basically.
0: Yeah. Um, what about the chase sequence? Because that really is something from a deck directorial perspective it's it's just brilliant
1: yeah yeah he he um manages to keep the tension up very well even though there's a lot of repetition in mm. that chase sequence to kind of draw it out where it's just you know the everybody on the in the stagecoach is an expert marksman and the native americans attacking can't hit the broadside of a barn um Except, like, once or twice. (laughs) Yeah. Like, even Doc Boone is, like, picking them off. And (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. And they never seem to grow or shrink in number. No matter how many of them they shoot, there's always kind of the same amount, same number chasing them. Which is kind of weird. I mean, that's just a, a nitpicky editing thing, but... Yeah, I think even despite that it's a it's a brilliant piece of technical film especially for the time and it looks like it was shot on location as well for the most part.
0: Yeah. And um the score is very good from Jerry Goldsmith um throughout that mm-hmm. that sequence and I was reading something about the um the horse situation and the the fact that a lot of horses were in this period were um Killed during filming um, because they were using mm-hmm. the trip wires um, to make them fall. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I believe that this is pretty much the last example of this, um, or one of the last examples, uh, because I feel as if um, Wayne and Ford were quite vocal about not wanting to use the trip wires. Um. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there was much use of them after this.
1: Yeah, and I I think it was around this time, or 1940-ish, when the um, American Humane Society started really pushing to have animal welfare monitors on movie sets.
0: Okay, shall we move on to the next movie?
1: Sure, let's do it.
0: Okay, so this is The Wizard of Oz. Um... And where do we even begin with The Wizard of Oz? Um, I think we were talking last week about uh, timeless films and advertising yourself as timeless. But I think this is the very definition of timeless. Um, mm-hmm. Because for me, I mean, I sat my niece down uh, in front of this movie 10 or 12 years ago when she was seven and she loved it. And we're talking like a, a gap of you know 70 years and i think it's still so entertaining and so imaginative um despite the um the age of the technical elements etc
1: yeah and it it doesn't use technology in a way that dated it you know mm. the the transition from black and white to color was of course meant to show off hey we have this new technicolor technology but it works so well you know in the as a story point that that will always look amazing and that will always be i think that will always be a awesome moment to see when you see the film for the first time when she steps out into the color world of oz i mean that that is a timeless moment always exciting
0: yeah and it's it's there's just a beautifully patient pan as well that goes all the way around the Munchkin City and we see all of this splendor and the wonderful art direction. And you can tell the flowers are kind of mm-hmm. paper, but it, it's just beautifully artistic. And um, yeah, that that is the moment yeah. for me that really is like the wow factor.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's um, another part of it that might appear to date and date some films, but I think kind of works with it is the fake like backgrounds. Yeah. Like when you, it, you go back a certain way and then it's like, OK, yes, we're in a studio and there's a wall painted to look like the sky. But to me, it just kind of adds to the fantasy element of it. And we're always kind of meant to question is her time in Oz, was it real, was it um, or was it all just a dream after being hit on the head in a tornado? So all of those elements that kind of blur the line between studio filmmaking and reality kind of just work for me and I I just um, I don't see it as a detriment.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it speaks to the power of imagination, but I think, like, more importantly, it's a, a very clever allegory for the myth of the American dream, in a way, and um, specifically immigration at times. Um, although I don't think it's that specific in the film, but there was definitely the intention of L. Frank Baum's novel... Um, that sort of was saying well you know the grass may look greener on the other side but what about this you know the smoke and mirrors not everyone is as they seem you can't have everything Um, and it it's, I think it's a beautiful way of demonstrating that
1: mm-hmm. yeah for sure the, they definitely toned down a lot of the more overt kind of political allegories of the of the novel, but they're still definitely there. So, you know, the movie works on that level of just being kind of a pure children's fantasy, like like you say, our nieces and nephews can enjoy it when they're small children, but then you can still watch it as an adult and kind of pick up on those kind of more adult lessons that it's still getting across to us.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm trying to think, there were, there were a couple of things I questioned this time around, um, which sounds mm-hmm. ridiculous, but, uh, you know, because it's a harmless <laughs> film, but there are a couple of things. I I do think it's very random that um, the witch is killed by water, um, that is never previously mentioned. You know, it's, it, it does feel as if yeah. the film kind of introduces previously unexplained things, um... Like, again, with the ruby yeah. slippers, like, you could have just clicked your heels all along. Well, nobody told her that. So, I, you know, there, there are kind of things where it, it brings up something in the plot, and you're kind of like, well, is in the book, is this actually supposed to be foreshadowed, but they haven't bothered in the film. So, I, I did wonder that, watching it uh, again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have always wondered about that, and it's always seemed to me that the water thing comes out of nowhere and I've I've always kind of wondered if there's a deleted scene or a, maybe an early draft of the script or something where they foreshadow that because it, I don't see it if it is um, and yeah that, that part has always kind of come out of nowhere for me and just kind of hastily done like oh you know I guess we can't I guess maybe it's to so that Dorothy killing the witch isn't too horrific. Like if it was something that made sense, like acid or something, it would just Burn be horrifying.
0: Death. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But the fact that it's just kind of a oh, I was trying to put my friend out, and some water got on the witch, and wow, that that was lucky. Then it <laughs> kind of preserves her innocence, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, did you want to mention Toto or Terry, as he was known?
1: um i did yeah terry um this was her uh kind of midway through her career and actually um only she was only ever credited in the you know in two of the movies that she was in uh one was kind of a real b movie from uh the year before and where she was credited as terry and then you have this one where she is credited again as terry but after this movie's success she was officially renamed Toto, um, wow. and continued to have a, a career. Yeah, she was a a well-trained um, film pro by the time she made The Wizard of Oz. She may have had more credits to her name uh, than anybody in the cast, actually. Um, <laughs> and yeah, she, she got um, stepped on by one of the witch's guards at one point and broke her leg oh. and had to recoup. Yeah, had to recuperate at Judy Garland's house for a couple of weeks, but she was she was fine back on the set and uh yeah, she was a big part of the production. Judy Garland wanted to adopt her after the um after the film was over, but her owner, a uh, fellow by the name of Carl Spitz, uh refused. Well,
0: understandably. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and uh the dog paid more than the Munchkins. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, more than twice as much as the Munchkin actors, which uh, had to hurt. Mm.
0: Dear. what any, any kind of... Have you seen the film Judy? Because it does sort of uh, draw on the fact that this experience of filming The Wizard of Oz was very bad for Judy Garland and very bad for her future mm. and they were giving her pills and stuff to keep her awake and
1: yeah, and to to keep her thin, right, and yeah. like looking like childlike, she had to wear a corset that really cinched up her her breasts and her and her uh, stomach to make her seem more childlike. Because mm. she was what seventeen when they made this, so she was not a she wasn't like a ten year old or whoever old uh, Dorothy is supposed to be.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it was interesting to watch it again. I think because. Judy Garland is very good at, um, she's just a very intuitive actress at times. And um, I think even despite what went on, she managed to give her such a great little performance in this. And it's, there's such a naivety that really works for it. And I didn't really doubt how old she was just because she made it work for me. but. <laughs>
1: No yeah she she does very very well and you nev- you definitely don't see the horrible behind the scenes reality uh, of the production and her performance i think she does very well Yeah And she does yeah she does kind of she always gets me with that kind of innocent wayfish Kansas girl that really works throughout the story she's constant and she's like kind of the perfect fish out of water hero like even when she gets you know takes on her own agency and starts acting proactively, she's still a scared little girl, you know she doesn't mm. suddenly become a great hero. she's still herself, which I think is a a wonderful characterization yeah but sometimes sometimes movies miss right when they have the the character that starts normal and then becomes heroic, and they just completely change into the hero mm. Um, and this one doesn't fall into that trap, which I like.
0: Okay, uh, next we have Wuthering Heights. Uh, boy, is this heavy. Um... Yes. Yes. <laughs> Emily, Br- <coughs> Emily Bronte's only novel, uh, and what a novel, regarded as a classic. Um...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I... I'm gonna say, off the bat, I have not read the novel. Um and i wish i had because i would then be able to get a firmer grasp on why i wasn't particularly taken with this film um because mm-hmm. i don't know if it's the film's fault or if it's the novel's fault so i for me i i don't didn't connect with the story or find it moving and that was mainly because of cathy's character um who I think is absolutely insufferable and (laughs) terribly played by Merle Oberon, um, who was really just... There was no introspective emotion for me at all in her performance. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't understand why he was so obsessed with her. So I really... it, It really didn't connect for me. But how did you feel, having read it?
1: Well... Yeah, um, I've read it a a couple of times. Not recently, but recently enough. Um, I had similar problems with the Kathy of the film. And I think that they cut so much out of the book in order to kind of fit it neatly into a three-act old Hollywood structure. Right. And they also cut out a lot of kind of Kathy's motivation and her kind of inner life so we're kind of left with yeah this flighty um annoying um gold digger kind of character yeah, totally. that that just oscillates depending on which man is in front of her you know oscillating to what she wants or what she thinks she wants and yeah heathcliff definitely shouldn't put up with that but what really um What really kills the movie for me, and I I do like it as a movie. I think it's a good movie, but compared to the book, the book is not, not a romance. The book is a, the book is an intergenerational tale of vengeance, and it's awesome. It is, I mean, it is a love story, but it's a twisted love story. It's a story of how love can destroy people and Emily Bronte would have been spinning in her grave to see an adaptation of that book where Heathcliff and Kathy are happy together in the afterlife. That is not Wuthering Heights. Mm. And by cutting so much of the book, it doesn't even make sense. You know, like what you were saying, why is Heathcliff obsessed with Kathy? What is what is Kathy even doing? It doesn't really make sense with the amount of the material that they were forced to cut to make it a, 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 I don't know, a movie of the common length of the time, I guess.
0: Yeah, there were elements that I thought were very vague and felt skipped over, Um, particularly how does Heathcliff become wealthy? Do we, is that, is there a departure in the book that, you know... Sees him in America or wherever he's gone to um
1: no the <clears throat> the the book keeps it vague as well, not so vague like there's but it definitely keeps it in the realm of um rumors, you know, mm. and it's definitely shrouded in mystery how Heathcliff gets his wealth, but I think we get more of a sense of his shady dealings in the book than we do in the movie.
0: And what about the fact that he then becomes master of the manor or whatever? I didn't really get why Hinckley suddenly just sort of conceded to him. I didn't really get that.
1: Well, I, I don't think it's up to Hindley. I think it's just because Hindley is in massive debt and Heathcliff shows up and basically buys out his debt by buying the ownership of Okay Wuthering Heights. I I guess we can presume that uh Hindley at one point or another put up his you know, his livestock or his lands or even maybe the deed of Wuthering Heights in a in a game gone wrong and never paid it back. So
0: Hm It like yeah, I, I did want more dimension uh within Kathy. I think Again, I think Oberon is just awful in this. Um, I think Olivia is good. And there was this particular scene I loved where he's shouting at her when she's on her deathbed. And I just thought, yes. <laughs> I just thought it was because you don't see that very often. and It felt very cathartic for him. And like, I was really in his corner, to be honest. You know, he's, he was angry at her. Yeah. And now she's going to leave him and he's angrier still. So I really got that. Um and I wanted more darkness in it overall. But to me, it didn't feel dark enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing. It it kind of flirts with the darkness, but it never commits because it it's kind of committed itself to being a romance, um, a a story of two people who, you know, these two crazy kids just can't end up together. But um, eventually, they do when when they die. Which, by the way, was a a shot that Weiler did not want to do. He didn't want that last ghosts walking in the snow bit. Um, And it's actually, it's not Olivier or Oberon in the shot. They were both gone by that point, so it's just doubles, just added pointlessness. But yeah, in in the book, there's a whole other generation. Like um, Edgar and Kathy have a child, and Heathcliff and Isabella have a child, and Heathcliff gets them to marry each other so that they're miserable together. And it's, like I said, it's awesome, but all of that is just cut from the story, and it really leaves it kind of wanting.
0: Yeah. I I did think uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald was very good. Um, And Mm -hmm. she was nominated for this one, right, rather than Dark Victory. She had both that's uh, right, uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought she was I thought that character um had some depth to it uh, from the way she played it, um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think Wyler does well, I can't really fault the direction, um I, to me, the issues are in the writing, so and some of the act
1: yeah, no, i think I think Wyler is the reason I still like the movie, despite the shortcomings of the script um. And this is, I mean, all three of the principal actors I'm talking um Olivier Oberon and Niven had a very difficult time with him throughout this production, especially Olivier, um, by his own admission, was kind of brash and arrogant and playing it like he was in the, in the West End and Wyler had to continually just whittle him down to a more manageable performance. And I just... I think he does amazing in the finished product He's that presence that is really uniquely Olivier is there from his first moment. So I wonder how, how long Olivier's kind of learning curve might've been with, if he hadn't worked with Weiler right away, if he, would have maybe had a more rough transition into film if he didn't have Wyler there to kind of beat out the theater mannerisms right away. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he and Oberon did not get on well. And yeah, yeah. I think David never was dreading working with Wyler.
1: Had he already worked with Wyler
0: once something?
1: Yeah, he did. Um, and he found it, yeah, exhausting and stressful apparently. Um, I think it was Betty Davis who said that um Weiler was not very articulate in his notes. Um most of the time he would just tell people, No, do it again and do it better and they just have to imagine what he meant by that, but he knew what he wanted and he knew when he got it, so um but yeah, he he put them through hell. He would always go through dozens of takes sometimes. He was an early kind of uh, influence on Stanley Kubrick in that regard and very much a perfectionist. So, yeah, Niven did not have a good time and um, was only very reluctantly a part of the production. Um, Kind of a segue uh, into the winner. Um, Olivier wanted, you know, I think as we might have mentioned, he wanted his future wife, I think at the time, girlfriend, Vivian Lee to be Kathy in this production, but um they all sat the three of them sat down together and Weiler offered her the role of Isabella and she refused and he said, Look, if you're looking for your American, your Hollywood debut, you're not gonna do better than this. And that was very wrong, wasn't it?
0: It was. Um <laughs> Yeah, it I could not have gone much better for Vivian Lee was Gone with the Wind. Um mm-hmm. which which is the role every actress wanted right
1: oh yeah that was a definitely a mad rush to play scarlet in in this production
0: i think there are loads of screen tests with you know every hollywood actress under the sun uh trying for this part mm-hmm. but i think they got it right um i think we both know each other's general opinion of the film um because I had already listed it on the website as one of my favourite films, and yeah, before we'd even recorded an episode of of this podcast, I did see it in, on your film's You Loathed section on your blog. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of knew what we were getting into. Um, so this might be a little like the Titanic discussion. <laughs>
1: Maybe, but no. Actually, I mean, it's it's part of the reason I chose this year um, because I I saw it on your you listed as one of your favorites, and I said, well, I definitely don't have that same opinion. So I'd really like to I'd really like to discuss it and see um see if we can find any common ground on on this film.
0: Okay. Well, I saw this when I was eight at my grandmother's house, and she had the VHS. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was a big fan, so this was my first introduction to Oscar pictures, and this is the first Best mm-hmm. Picture winner I saw. So, um, and for me, its biggest success is as a woman's picture and as a character study. Um, so I, th- okay. I think the film does a very good job of setting up Scarlett as a character. Um. And it's about a woman who, despite all the turmoil that's going on around her, is very much shaping her own journey and future, uh, even Mm -hmm. despite massive upheaval. Um, So I do think it's one of the greatest female characters uh, in cinema. And her entrance at the beginning, well, in the third or fourth scene at Seven Oaks for the barbecue... uh, I just feel like that's done very well. Um, Lee brings such a whirlwind of charisma to that sequence and she just moves from man to man um, just shamelessly charming them all. And I think it's a great way of establishing how how insincere the character is and how conceited it is. Um, mm-hmm. And also giving us introducing us to characters that would then factor into the story later on. So I think there's a lot of Economic scenes at the beginning that actually helps to build the character and the situation, um, and the general players involved in the story.
1: Okay, well, um, well, I would agree that that scene is very economic. Um, one of the last economic moments in the in the whole film. Um, the the problem with me with Scarlett, well, first of all, I don't understand why all the boys are in love with her why she has a crowd of bows as they're called um crowding her and fighting to see who gets to bring her a piece of cake she's like she has no personality other than oh my goodness look at this big strong man <laughs> and i i won't do that again i promise um <laughs> but like I don't understand why they're also so um, obsessed with her. There are plenty of other um, young ladies, nicer young ladies, smarter young ladies, for them to lavish their attention on. Is it just because she's unobtainable? Or then she turns out to be very easily obtainable when it suits her? Um, I didn't get that. And also, while I, while I do get that she is portrayed as you know a woman who yeah knows what she wants and does what she needs to to get it it's the horrible way she goes about getting it that really just turned me off um and it gets to it gets so it just wears me down to the point whereby we get by the time we get to the final hour of the film i just wanted to end because i can't stand her anymore and i i like unlikable protagonists but she is just positioned as this strong ultimately worthwhile character and I don't think she really is in the end
0: she kind of comes to a point at the end where she knows what matters but during the film she's trying to get comfortable and but not, not comfortable through being um, a wallflower which I did find just quite refreshing mm-hmm.
1: but as to me, there's a fine line between not being a wallflower and just being a villain. And <laughs> she she treats other people with such disregard. Hmm. Um, and throughout the... Like, she has to... I mean, I get being obsessed with Leslie Howard, but at a certain <laughs> point, you have to... You have to let it go, and she, just every time she's around him, all the progress she's made in taking control and being strong just goes out the window, and she's fawning again and and mm. throwing herself at him, and that always that always just made me feel like it's all just an act. This strong, fearless whatever is just an act. The real Scarlet is this selfish little brat who is trying to steal melanie's husband despite repeatedly running into a brick wall there of course yes. yeah he does tease her a yes, bit more than i remembered mm. um he he's a weak man much weaker than i remembered him being the first time around but even so he's i mean he's too weak to leave his wife for her much less openly declare that he wants to despite yeah the little the little moments they share
0: well he kisses it twice. Um
1: He does do that. Yes.
0: And I think he recognises I think he's like there's only there's pretty much only two rational men in the film and that's Rhett Butler and Ashley because he does recognise that it's not going to work um with Scarlet yeah. and really he's got a woman who's pretty much a saint to fall back on. So um yeah. I I don't know. I think we're going to disagree about the character, but I wanted to bring up something that I had noticed this time that I didn't notice in previous times. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the the fact that it's not as faithful to the South as I remembered it being. Um, There's there's a line, for instance, I think Rhett says... um, he says the cause of living in the past is dying right in front of us. And like, that's when the mm-hmm. Gettysburg casualties are coming out, which is quite an emotional scene. Um, yeah. And I just thought, okay. And I thought, I I don't think that that would have been in the original novel. Um, I think that's probably something Sidney Howard has introduced because by all accounts, Margaret Mitchell's version was reverent of the South a bit more. But it does feel yeah. you know, Ashley or also says um something like, When wars are over you never realised what they were about in the first place. Um and mm-hmm. it d- does feel like, you know, these characters, but particularly Rhett and his pragmatism towards certain elements of the war is an interesting transition view. Um between the before and after of the South. And there is an element of, if you hadn't been so pig headed and admitted that you didn't need slaves in the first place, you wouldn't be in this mess. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely some critical elements there, whereas in a lot of pieces written about the film is that it can't really, um, treat the South fairly. Um, so, and I definitely think the films on the wrong side of history don't get me wrong, but there are parts of it that is definitely saying that the South is at fault for some of it
1: yeah i mean i I notice those elements too, but to me that um it wasn't really enough for me to think that the that the film didn't kind of fetishize the antebellum self. Yeah. I mean, it opens with that title card saying there was once a glorious civilization of gentle men and women. Oh, and they're slaves, but they were so noble. <laughs> um, and... um, And they treated and them
0: well. It, as, um, of course. Ashley oh, says of course, at one point, you know. we treated them well.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he... <laughs> Yeah, that was yeah, not like you're treating these poor white men, you know, you're treating them like the worst slaves, you know. Um but yeah, the the myth kind of of the benevolent plantation owner and then um after the war there are no free black characters who aren't presented as just idiots, you know. Either they're dancing in the streets and getting in Mammy's way, or they're being taken for a ride by the carpetbaggers, you know? So yeah, the f- film, ve- and of course, all of their former slaves stay with them. You know, they remain loyal and remain like, oh, no, you're my family. I want to stay with you. Um and the film is very skittish about the word slave like they always refer to them as workers or servants you know yeah and i mean there's there's a couple of scenes where scarlet threatens to whip um the the loud screechy annoying one what's prissy. what's her name prissy yeah um but other than that you know that's really the only hint we get that oh Right These people were slaves who were treated as property and regularly beaten and abused. right. Of course, that element. Um, it was right at a just kind of um, at a point where attitudes towards the civil war were starting to shift in a kind of horrible direction where the confederacy began to be seen as this noble, uh, era of southern heritage um, nowadays it's called the lost cause you know this um noble yeah landed gentry this very civilized um, nation that is a proud part of southern history rather than a breakaway traitorous slaveholding you know rogue state and I think that gone with the wind was part of that wave of legitimizing that view right um which again like we like you were saying earlier it's definitely not on the right side of history in many regards but it's kind of uncomfortable to watch it now because even then they knew that they had to tone down a lot of the racist stuff i mean they exercised you know the n-word they exercised any reference any overt references to the KKK but it was still there so they knew they had to tone it down but they they still left in quite a lot that kind of dates the film pretty badly
0: yeah uh i think there's a pretty big divide between the first half and the second half in terms of the tone um oh yeah mm-hmm. i think i mean to me the first half is a perfect movie um but i think in the second half there's a bit too much tragedy, um, which is probably a fault of the book. I Really, there could have been two less deaths. I, I didn't see any reason why the daughter had to die or why the father needed a mm-hmm. death scene. I think it would have been better if they'd come back to Tara and he'd already been dead and the mother were dead because it sort of then has the yeah. intermission and it, that would be then leaving the old life behind. Um and going on mm-hmm. with the news. So, yeah, I, I think there is a, a couple of tragedies too many.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I agree that the first half is amazing. And to me, if the film had just ended roughly at the God is my witness scene, and if they had cleaned that up a little bit and made it more of a proper ending, it would have felt triumphant to me. And it would have kind of completed Scarlet's arc in a very satisfying way to me, she would have gone from the the spoiled little brat to this strong-willed, independent woman who's now going to, you know, reclaim her her land.
0: Yeah, but but by lying, cheating, and stealing.
1: <laughs> well, right, but we didn't have to see that if they just ended the movie there. <laughs> you know, I could have imagined her as a noble person. Then the second half of the movie, yeah, begins with all of her horrible deeds. I'm not really talking about stealing her sister's bow because who cares? I'm talking more about exploiting prison labor and things like that. Yeah. Um, And then the air just gets completely let out. Like the war and everything lends the first half so much drama that it just so much tension that it just carries it through, and it's very exciting. But there doesn't seem to be any stakes in the second half, or at least pale stakes in comparison to the ones in the first half.
0: Yeah, and I believe, um, is it George Cooke did much of the second half? Uh, and I, I th- think so, yeah. And I think Fleming is more of the first half. Um. Because mm-hmm. and I think Sam Wood was involved at some point. In the film,
1: yeah, I think that's that's another issue that I have with the movie is that it had so many directors and so much influence that it kind of feels like there's no central focus of it. I mean, we have Scarlet to kind of give us a focal point all the way through, but there doesn't seem to be any ultimate point. And I think that it suffers kind of by cramming in everything from the book when they could have, you know, taken a scissors to some of those scenes. I agree with you that there's too much death in the last act. Um, yeah. And, yeah, definitely the, the whole second half the after the intermission could have been trimmed substantially, I think, and it would have definitely improved the movie.
0: Okay, um... All right, so we've got some listener questions, neither of which are about Gone with the Wind. Um,
1: uh, Very surprising. Yeah. Uh,
0: First one is by Catherine Short uh, on the Wuthering Heights issue, which we touched on earlier. Um, She asks, would Wuthering Heights be a better film if they kept the third act of the novel and dealt with the repercussions of Cathy and Heathcliff's relationship and the way that that impacts their children? And does it feel like a less tragic story without that detail?
1: Um, I mean, definitely it's less tragic because um, without that added element, I think you lose a lot of the characterization that makes these such brilliant characters in the book. Um, and I definitely think that this would have been a much better movie uh, had it been a faithful adaptation of the entire book, maybe it would have been just too dark for the time because it is a dark story. There's not a lot of redemption going on there. Um, so I can kind of understand why they made the decision to adapt it the way they did. But me, you know, personally, I do think it would have been a far better movie if they had been faithful to the book.
0: Well, The Little Foxes is not much after this, and that's pretty dark. Um, yeah, it's it, true. It just needed to amp things up for me, but I can't really speak to the third act of the novel, but um, I feel like it would have been, had to have been three hours long if they'd have tacked on the um, another generation as well, but...
1: I mean, I'd have watched it. I mean, like yeah. I... S- like I say, it's William Wyler directing, Laurence Olivier doing just as great job as Heathcliff. I I like I still like the movie because of those very strong elements, so I'd I'd watch a three hour Wuthering Heights adaptation. Okay.
0: Okay, uh and our second question from Ronaldo Sosa uh asks uh he says it has come to my attention that Ninochka was a big departure for Greta Garbo's usual roles, as shown by the phrase Garbo laps being used in the promotional material. How do you feel about her earlier work?
1: Um, this is all you. I'm afraid I'm not very well versed in Garbo's filmography, other than Grand Hotel. So um, I, I don't think I can speak to this question.
0: Well, I've not seen the big one, Um, which is Anna Karenina, I think that's regarded as Mm -hmm. a huge performance that I still have not seen, but I have seen Anna Christie and Camille. um, Mm -hmm. And I think she's good in Anna Christie and excellent in Camille. I mean, Camille's very different than this though. It's, it's very mannered and it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's probably a bit much for some people. Um, Cause it's very much um, well, she's in love, basically, uh, tragically in love, and it's it's a completely different performance. Like for me, Ninochka is her best that I've seen, but it yeah, it's a huge departure. Um, but her earlier work is good too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, um, all right. Let's talk about why *Gone with the Wind* won this Oscar. Uh, <laughs> and was <Yeah>. it close? <laughs>
1: um, Somehow I doubt that there was any, any doubt about what was going to win this year. I mean, it's a very strong field, but Gone with the Wind is just in a different class. In in just its scope and uh, the spectacle of it. We didn't um, even talk
0: about the box office.
1: That's true, yeah. Still, um adjusted for inflation still the number one all time at the US box office or global box office maybe I'm not even sure yeah but i mean it it gets re-released so many times like here in um here in spain uh my wife's parents remember seeing it multiple times in theaters because it just gets released and released and released so uh it it has 80 years of um box office to work with but yeah just a enormous smash yeah yeah it's difficult to
0: see what uh what would have come even close to this it's um th- this was talked about as well before it came out um for a long time and people were anticipating mm. it um so Yeah, this was the one to beat and it it really did um, tick a lot of boxes for people at the time. Yeah. What do you think was snubbed? What what could have been here or should have been here in this lineup? I
1: don't know. I mean, maybe um, I I really don't know. Maybe Bo Jest was also a a hit and had a lot of big names in it Hmm. Um, as a, I think maybe Juarez also had a pretty strong cast and a, um, a director that did a lot of Academy friendly uh, work. So those two I'm imagining would probably have been in the, been in the conversation.
0: I mean, the big one that comes to mind for me is Young Mr. Lincoln, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the John Ford film, and I know he had Stagecoach, um, so it might just be that they chose the bigger film, but I know that the year before, for instance, Michael Curtis was nominated for Four Daughters and Angels with Dirty Faces, yeah. so... It, it it wasn't unprecedented that they could have acknowledged two films um, from John Ford, but it was difficult to crack this line yeah. up. So, um, mm-hmm. And on a personal note, I want to mention Only Angels Have Wings, the the Howard Hawks film with yeah, Cary Grant, which is just brilliant. I love it. Um, wider observations. So you had an interesting statistic on this year. With the amount of nominations the films's got,
1: yeah, um, which is still unmatched, um of course, if there had been ten nominees last year, they would have broken this record because uh they were one short with one less film, but yes, between these ten films, there were seventy nominations, um which is pretty remarkable, the lowest I think was dark victory had three, and everything else had um Upwards of that. Gone with the Wind, of course, set the record with uh, 13. And then you had Mr. Smith Goes to Washington had 11. Wow. And of course, it, it only it only won one. Um, Wuthering Heights picked up eight. Yeah, they, these were very heavy films in terms of nominees, um, nominations and just kind of the weight that each of them carried in the Oscars race.
0: I think you can broadly understand that to be honest, um mm-hmm. given the strength of the lineup, I think like for instance, you can get lineups now where you think you know half of them are pretty mediocre, <laughs> um and yet, yeah. you yeah. know they still get nominated for eight Oscars, and so you are like really? Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but with this, I think it's fair enough um for the most part um that that these racked up a lot of nominations between them.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that um in this year cinematography was broken into color and black and white but art direction was not so um had that been split they might have um might have upped the count of a few of the films as well. Okay, shall we rank these? Sure. Um I have a, I have a feeling um This might be our most uh, disparate ranking yet. Uh, Let's go for it. Okay. So I've
0: got number 10, I've got Wuthering Heights. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, I just didn't get it. Um, Number nine, I've got Love Affair. Number Mm eight, Of Mice and Men. Number seven, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Number six, Dark Victory. Number five, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Number four, Ninochka. Number three, The Wizard of Oz. Number two, Stagecoach. And number one, Gone with the Wind.
1: All right. Actually, near the top, um, there's some uh, overlap pretty well. Um, For me, uh, number 10 is Love Affair. Okay.
0: Um,
1: Just kind of sat there at the bottom and never really moved. Um, Number nine, uh, Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Um, Okay. I I can't. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Number number eight, um, Of Mice and Men. Number seven, Goodbye Mr. Chips. Number six, Dark Victory. Uh, Number five, Wuthering Heights. Like I said, just on its strengths, I think it raised it, even though I have mm, kind of more issues with it than films I ranked lower. Yeah. Um, number four, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Number three, The Wizard of Oz. Number two, Ninotchka, And number one, uh, Stagecoach.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, I mean, aside from... Actually, aside from Gone with the Wind being low on mine, we actually tallied the rest pretty close.
0: Yeah, apart from Wuthering Heights, I think those were the two ones oh, yeah, we, I, yeah. we differed on, but the rest we were, were pretty mm-hmm. similar. Yeah. So, if anyone, yeah, if anyone wants to defend Gone with the Wind <laughs> or defend any of these other films that we've think, talked about, you could, you could. I think so you in... did pretty well. <laughs> um, feel free to do so on Twitter.
1: Yeah, and if anybody, if anybody wants to, you know, make me feel less alone <laughs> in my hatred of this film, feel free. You know, let like, let me know if I have any friends out there.
0: I don't think you can call it hatred when, the, when Irene Dunn is at number 10. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know. Maybe, um, yeah, I suppose not, but I, I'm, I'm going to call it hatred. You can, uh, you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: We've got a website, dot we and run Twitter at cate- Categorically O and run all Spotify, etc. Um, then the next episode uh, is a little random we're going to be doing best costume design of 1978
1: um so yeah i'm excited about this one i've been um i've been waiting to do a costume design one for a while so i'm glad we're i'm glad we're getting into it
0: okay you're going to do your fashion research for next week yeah
1: oh yeah of course i'm going to i'm going to know all the All the terms, I'm going to go full (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, prepping for Phantom Thread. (laughs) Um, The nominees
0: for Best Costume Design 1978 were Caravans. Yes, we had no idea what that was before this either. Um, (laughs) Days of Heaven, The Swarm, uh, The Whiz, and The Winner, Death on the Nile.
1: Some very... Some very fun costume design going on in these films.
0: And there's some very bizarre films on the face of it. I I may have to apologize to you next week once we've watched some of these. <laughs> 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 well,
1: I'm 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 looking forward to it. I mean we have uh we have a wild adaptation of you know a movie that we both loved this week, The Wiz you know, The Whiz. Uh I love seventies wild disaster movies so yeah. I'm looking forward to diving into an Irwin Allen film um, and of course you know you got Terrence Malick and Agatha Christie and it, yeah I I think there's going to be a lot to work with here.
0: Yeah so anyone that wants to watch, uh, watch the films with us I, I think they're going to be broadly entertaining um, for the next mm-hmm. episode. I could while
1: away the hours Confirming with the flowers Consulting with the rain And my head I'd be scratching While my thoughts were busy hatching If I only had a brain I'd unravel every riddle For any individual In trouble or in pain With the thoughts you'd be thinking You could be another Lincoln If you only had a brain Oh, I could tell you why The ocean's near the shore I could think of things I never thought before And then I'd sit and think some more I would not be just a nothing My head all full of stuffin', My heart all full of pain I would dance and be merry Life would be a ding a dairy If I only had a brain